Greetings, everyone, from all around the world. This is Laszlo Montgomery, China History Podcast. We've been sequestered together for the past nine weeks, looking at the history of Chinese philosophy from the earliest days, even before Confucius. And in this final episode, part nine, we're going to take it as far as we dare go. And that is going to be with the person we finished off with last time in part eight, Wang Shouren, a.k.a. Wang Yangming, what a comeback he made in the 21st century. We'll get to that in a minute. I mentioned last time this whole Neo-Confucianism philosophy sort of got split in two. The Li Xue School, the school of Li, or principle, was developed by Cheng Yi and perfected by Zhu Xi, and this became known as the Chengzhu School. You can see that on the infographic provided at the outset. And now we will look at their number one competitor, the school that began with Cheng Hao and later fortified with the thought of Lu Jiuyuan. We all got to hear about him last episode. He was also known as Lu Xiangshan, the master of Xiangshan. Lu denied the existence of any truths other than what one gained through their own awareness. Remember his famous words from last episode, quote, The universe is in my mind, and my mind is the universe, end quote. The master of Xiangshan, he said what you were taught, wasn't as important. Lu Xiangshan and Zhu Xi were rivals in their day, whose philosophical differences were mainly concerned with the route one should take in order to become a sage. Zhu Xi read, read those four books and acquire all this external knowledge coupled with purposeful self-cultivation to better yourself. Lu said, all you need to know is already in your mind. The master of Xiangshan said, focus instead on what's already in your mind to seek the truth. Now, Wang Yangming is going to take this to another level, subtly, of course, but his enthusiasm for this idea postulated by Lu Xiangshan allowed his name to be forever associated with the concept of innate knowledge. And this school of thought, championed by Wang Yangming, became known as the Lu Wang School of the Mind, or Xinxue. This was the thought of Lu Jiuyuan, and Wang Shouren, or if you prefer, Lu Xiangshan and Wang Yangming, take your choice. Both names work in polite society. Wang Yangming, from his perch well into the Ming Dynasty, thought those fellows back in the Song didn't get it quite right. The number of years between the time of the five founders of Song Neo-Confucianism in the 11th century up to Wang Yangming was as great as that of Columbus discovering America up to our present day. So once again, as these philosophers did from time to time, they said, too much time has passed. There needed to be some tidying up and recalibrating of accepted doctrines so that the ideology got to take advantage of all the innovations and new ideas of these more advanced and sophisticated times. And that's what Wang Yangming sought to do. It all started last time in Part 8, when he was in Guizhou. This was back in 1508. He had a sudden aha moment regarding what he saw as a critical flaw in Zhu Xi's thought. And this epiphany that Wang had in Guizhou back in 1508 was summarized in a poem he wrote. Quote, Everyone has within an erring compass. The root and source of the myriad transformations lies in the mind. I laugh when I think that earlier I saw things the other way around. Following branches and leaves, I searched outside. 
Wang's passion was in understanding how people knew right from wrong. He said there's some conscience or moral compass that is hardwired into our makeup that causes us to act the ways we do. Where did Wang Yangming part ways with the established Zhu Xi Li Xue school of principle? It all came down to the role of the mind in humans. Zhu Xi said all Li, or principle, are now and forever present no matter whether the mind exists or not. Wang Shouren, Master Yang Ming, he said, if there's no mind, there can be no Li. The mind is the administrator of all the Li in the universe. It's all in your mind. This was the main point Wang Yang Ming seized on and made central to his thought, and for what he's most remembered. He then tried to emphasize in the Confucian sense how to cultivate the Xin, or mind. During Wang Yangming's period of meditation at that cave an hour north of Guiyang when he was exiled due to the perfidy of the eunuch Liu Jin, he came up with his idea of the unity of knowledge and action. Yeah, what Tian Xiaowei Gong was to Sun Yat-sen, that's what Yi was to Wang Yangming. That's the signature slogan or saying most associated with his name. What this unity of knowledge and action meant, on a simple level at least, is that innately, without having to learn to do so, just by our own very own moral compass that came with the package at birth, we all have the knowledge about the morality of a given situation and take action accordingly. You know what to do innately. Wang Yangming said that you don't need to go learn what to do from somewhere else. And the Confucian classics, the four books, he didn't say don't read them, all Wang Yangming was saying in his idea of or unity of knowledge and action was that Confucius, Zhu Xi, no one could teach you what to do. Everything you should morally do, it's already in your xin, your mind. It already has it all figured out. Reciprocity, do unto others as you'd like them to do unto you. Wang Yangming would say, what? What do you need to read the Lun Yu to know that? You already know in your mind what's the right thing to do, what a good and decent person would do. We all have the knowledge within us. Ah, but let me repeat, not all of us act morally, or at all. That's the problem. How do you put this liangzhi, this innate knowledge, to work? It's part of your moral compass and leads you always to make the right choice, the moral choice. It knows how to respond to any situation. The problem is losing it. It doesn't die or disappear, but if one's selfish desires and immoral character become part of their makeup, well, it becomes easy to lose sight of this goodness and to compartmentalize your inner Li. And Wang Yangming insisted that this mind we all have, as Mengzi said it was, was good. And we could all gain self-awareness through purposefully acting and being good in the Confucian sense. Wang wasn't the first to say this, but he implored his students, don't just read them books to get into a good school and go on to become rich and famous. Jushi's commentaries on the four books were sacred in Wang Yangming's time. When it was learned that Wang Yangming's idea of fixing up the four books meant restoring them to where they were before Jushi took all these liberties he did, well, this created quite a storm back in the early 1500s. There were no fence-sitters on this issue. You were for or against what Wang Yangming was teaching. Zhu Xi's commentaries on the four books had become a victim of its own success. 
Juicy emphasized what he called the investigation of things, gewu, which was essentially book learning, memorizing these texts. Rather than being read and studied for what the content might teach you, people instead just memorized the material without considering the meaning or how it related to them. Rather than reading the four books and Chu Xi's commentaries for what it had to teach, it had just become material for you to cram inside for the sake of passing a test and maybe going on to a successful career. This malaise in purposefully carrying out these rituals and following these teachings had even affected the way people went through the motions and showing reverence for their ancestors. Wang Yangming believed this is what Neo-Confucianism, the Chengju Lixia version at least, had become. So he just wanted to reform it, that's all. He just wanted to reinvent Lixia to shed itself of all the barnacles and extra weight that had accumulated. And in freshening up the doctrine, it would be more relevant to the times. Wang advocated for a regimen of self-cultivation through meditation and going with your own intuitive moral understanding. He had great faith in the goodness of human nature, and he sought to teach a way of living that benefited society the most. And the reference books that one could consult to enhance their understanding of correct moral behavior were contained in the four books. Wang Yangming's message was to encourage each person to develop their own innate knowledge so that they could discover their sageliness within themselves. Again, he emphasized blindly studying the words of the ancient paragons of virtue wasn't the way. Wang Yangming was considered a rebel in some respects, and his followers carried forward his reforming spirit. This included real reforms for the common folk. Wang was for things like providing educational opportunities to all the people. He advocated for women and came right out and said they were no more or less intellectual than men. After as many years in the eunuch-infested nest of vipers that was the mid-to-late Ming Dynasty imperial government, it was easy to become disillusioned with the state. Wang Yangming insisted that government wasn't the solution to China's problems. This was a significant parting of the ways with old Confucianism that had always looked to a benevolent and righteous government as the starting point for a peaceful and stable society. F.W. Moat said of Wang Yangming, quote, He encouraged a reorientation of the political focus away from emperor, state, and government. He turned that focus to the people who led and who made up the small community. He turned away from the traditional leadership role of the high elites in central government offices to the local context of social life, in which the elite and commoners shared in the responsibility for themselves and to one another. He had come to see this as the most hopeful arena of Confucian social action. End quote. I think I have done enough yammering about Wang Shouren, a.k.a. Wang Yangming, yes, of Taipei Yangmingshan fame. When I began this History of Chinese Philosophy series, I intended only to go this far, so... Rather than get into what happened to philosophy in the Qing, we're going to end it here with the death of Wang Yangming in 1529. He died before his time at the relatively young age of 57. In last episode, we saw he served the Ming rulers in some very rough terrains, Jiangxi, Guizhou, Guangxi. Back in the early 16th century, you really had to rough it in those places. And we saw last episode how Wang lacked the physical constitution to thrive in such 
backward locales. As he lay in his deathbed, surrounded by his disciples, he was asked if he had any final words. And Wang Yangming gave his famous reply, Zi xin guang ming, yi fu he yan. This xin, this heart or mind of mine, is bright. There is no need to say anything else. A hundred and fifteen years after Wang Yangming's death came the end of the Ming and the establishment of the Qing, and this time not only did Zhu Xi come in for a second caning, so did Wang Yangming. In the Confucianist world, there occurred a backlash against Neo-Confucianism, both the Lu Wang and Cheng Zhu sort. This new reactionary movement was called Han Xue, the learning of the Han Dynasty. In other words, forgetting about all the revisions, changes, gross liberties taken throughout the centuries and going back to the thought that emerged during the Han Dynasty. Why the Han? Well, they were the ones who were closest to Confucius and Mengzi's time, and the received texts were uncorrupted with all these radical new thoughts and unconfucian teachings that popped up over the centuries. So these Qing thinkers looked to rediscover what they called the true teachings of the classical Confucian sages. And the charge the radical Qing scholars made against both Zhu Xi and Wang Yangming was that both Li Xie and Xin Xie were completely infused with so many extraneous Taoist and Buddhist elements that the Confucianists of the classical age wouldn't even recognize it. So during the Qing, there was a powerful faction in the Confucian hierarchy who made it their job to peel away a great deal of what had been pasted on since the early Song. And then much later on, Trade and commerce wasn't the only thing affected by the arrival of the European powers during the 18th century. The Confucians in government, they knew a bad thing when they saw it. The tug of war between entrenched Confucian officials and the Westerners and all their demands for changes to the status quo, as far as it affected them, will lead to an epic tug of war struggle that will end in 1905 when the civil service exams were cast aside as the only ticket to becoming a government official. And once this happened, Confucianism took its biggest hit in its long history. After losing its raison d'etre, Confucian elders would have to do what they always did, reinvent Confucianism and maintain its relevancy. As I mentioned previously, part two, I believe, Confucius went through the ringer a few times in history, Qin Dynasty and Cultural Revolution most notably. Well, after 1949 and clear through to the 2000s, Wang Yangming's bourgeois thought was considered best left unread. Just as Mengzi had to live in purgatory during the Hongwu Emperor's time for his thought, so Wang Yangming had to lay low in modern times. Well, some places, China most notably. But not anymore. He's back, and perhaps bigger than ever, in recognizing that some of these old ideas and a lot of this guoxue, this traditional Chinese culture, should get a second look. Even China's leaders, President Xi Jinping most notably in 2014, have said, as far as raising the sense of public morality is concerned, there's something to be learned from Wang Yangming. And it's in the city of Guiyang, in nature's paradise, Guizhou province, the banner of Wang Yangming is being raised higher than well, perhaps elsewhere. 
From looking at the uh, Chinese side of the web, the subject of Wang Yangming has, well, these past couple years, gotten a lot of attention. In Guiyang, they've pulled out all the stops. Not only is there a Wang Yangming Museum, there's also a Wang Yangming Park, of which the cave where he went to meditate and where he took on the courtesy name Yang Ming, that's inside the park. As much as I'd love to keep on going, I'm going to cash out right here. Naturally, it's tempting to take this on to its logical conclusion in the Qing, but in order to avoid dragging this out for another ten episodes, let's put the quill down and move on to the next great thing here at the CHP. Nine weeks in a row. Jeez, you're probably sick of philosophy by now, not to mention hearing my voice. I wanted to recommend this book that came out in 2016, published by Simon & Schuster. It was called The Path, What Chinese Philosophers Can Teach Us About the Good Life. The authors were Michael Pewitt and Christine Gross Lowe. Dr. Pewitt is the Walter C. Klein Professor of Chinese History in the Department of East Asian Languages and Civilizations, and chair of the Committee on the Study of Religion at the famous Harvard. Christine Gross Lowe is an author who writes on history, education, philosophy, and global parenting, and has been published all over the place. They teamed up to write this book, which was a smashing success. It's a very handy and concise guide that, in essence, said, this ancient philosophy that started to come together beginning around the 6th century BCE that we looked at in parts two to six, it was by no means a dead philosophy. Even in our 21st century times, these words and ideas still have relevance and could still be of use to us in our day. In fact, both authors explain, learning from these ancient thinkers can guide you to a good and meaningful life. The path explains very clearly how by following some of these ancient books, many mentioned throughout this series, you can look at your own life and gain a fresh new perspective about how to look at yourself and your future. There's plenty of wisdom contained in these texts that can perhaps offer you a degree of enlightenment. In reading the book, you will also get a nice review of all the things we discussed in parts one and two of this series regarding the historical dynamic that led to the rise of this class of Ru philosophers, of which Confucius and Mengzi were part of. Before we call it a day, there are a couple more things I wanted to introduce to you. These aren't necessarily Chinese philosophy, but a lot of this was incorporated into Confucianism and especially Taoism. We didn't discuss this in detail, so before we part ways, I wanted to provide an overview of the five elements, the wuxing. I think most of us have at least passing knowledge of what the five elements are, or at least we've seen them represented in art, cosmetics, sets of soaps, and scented aromatherapy candles, or maybe a t-shirt. The five elements, fire, water, wood, metal, soil. These aren't names. They don't actually mean what they say. They stand for abstract forces that go way beyond the simplicity of what these five Chinese characters translate to. Besides being called the five elements, these wuxing are also referred to as the five activities, the five agents, and the five dynamic interacting forces, among other things. In the beginning, there were the opposing forces of yin and yang, and from this interaction came the five elements, and our world is made up of these five elements. The whole idea of the wuxing 
goes back maybe as far as 2000 BCE, but most probably it got its start in the early Zhou, 1000 BCE or so. Each of these five elements has certain attributes ascribed to them. The nature of water, for example, is to moisten and to descend. The nature of fire is to flame and ascend. The nature of wood is to be crooked and to straighten. The nature of metal is to yield and be modified. And the nature of soil is to provide for sowing and reaping. Are you lost yet? The Wuxing has its tentacles and all kinds of other aspects of Chinese culture, maybe most well-known in the world of Chinese medicine. When this all began, Xia, Shang, Zhou, again, like everything else from this long ago, it's hard to say, but like a lot of what we discussed, the Han Dynasty is where all the raw materials extracted from the Zhou got processed into the forms we're most familiar with. As far as the history of the five elements goes, let me mention someone named Zhou Yan, he was a contemporary of Xunzi, Hanfei, and Li Si. He lived 305 to 240 BCE, missing the founding of the Qin by 20 years. These thinkers all knew each other from the Jixia Gong, the Jixia Academy. Zhou Yan, too, was one of those great minds studying at that famous school in Qi State. Sima Tan grouped Zhou Yan with the Yin Yang School, calling him the founder, actually. He was credited with discovering this nexus that existed between science and philosophy. And he pointed to the five elements as the way to understand it. Joseph Needham, featured in CHP episodes 155-156, called Zhou Yan the real founder of Chinese scientific thought. It all began with him. Remember that Confucianism and science, mm, not good friends, no use for each other. Zhou, who came from Qi State, took the concept of yin and yang and synthesized it with the five elements, and in so doing, organized an entire cosmology that had these wuxing, these five agents, as its nucleus. Once again, if not for Sima Qian enshrining Zhou Yan into the record of the Grand Historian, perhaps we wouldn't even know that he ever existed. In the Han, Zhou Yan was also known as a great alchemist, Back in Zhou Yan's day, these practitioners of the occult arts were called feng shis. We know them as shamans. And in his day, Zhou Yan was tremendously popular with the nobles, aristocrats, and, well, I guess anyone who could afford his services. Taoism embraced many ideas from Zhou Yan, especially how Zhou explained the entire universe in terms of yin and yang and the five elements. Such a neat and tidy system that made so much sense, too. 300 BCE, that is. The earliest of these feng shi masters went all the way back to the Shang Dynasty. They all used their specialized knowledge, accumulated from centuries of observations of the 28 constellations, the five planets, four weren't discovered yet, the sun, the moon, and they used all this accumulated data to create an entire astrological system. And from this system evolved these almanacs that explain the four seasons, the equinoxes, solstices, and how everything tied together and how it affected the fortunes of the dynasty. So you could say in a day that lacked our sophistication, all this observed natural data was pretty important stuff, especially for rulers 
seeking signs of heaven's favor. And of course, only the Fangshirs knew how to consult these almanacs and discern the appropriate course of action to take or not to take, you know, depending. One of the titles to come out of the yin-yang school that Zhou Yan is credited with founding was a text called the Monthly Commands, or Yue Ling. It's mentioned in both the Li Shi Chunqiu and the Li Ji, the Book of Rites, so it's old. The king and his court had to follow a ton of rituals and ceremonies, and if you didn't do them on the right day and the right hour, facing in the right direction, yeah, you might as well not do them at all. So the Yue Ling was this handy guide that had the whole schedule written down for you. And it was all based on this cosmological theory developed to explain and reconcile all humankind's questions with known observations made since the most ancient times. Natural forces were mixed in with time and space, and all of this was, yes, connected to the conduct of human beings. Zhou Yan was the first one to profess that each of the Wuxing, the five elements, although abstract forces, each had a personified virtue, and that the Tianming, the mandate of heaven, was manifested in ways that can all be understood through the prism of understanding the five elements. This may all sound a little bit too far out for a rational mind, but this theory had staying power and was still considered important well into the Qing dynasty. This was one of the most important things Zhou Yan said, that the interaction of these forces governed the rise and fall of all dynasties. Each dynasty was ruled by one of these five elements. For example, the mythical Emperor Shun, it said, was ruled by the element Earth, the Xia dynasty was ruled by wood, the Shang by metal, the Zhou by fire, and each element had all kinds of properties associated with it that reflected on the dynasty's character. Then yin and yang were added to the mix to further explain things and give ideas depth. As far as the order of the five elements, there's two ways to do this. One is called the Mutual Generation or Xiangsheng series, which goes like this. Wood produces fire, fire produces earth, earth produces metal, metal produces water, and water produces wood. Then, there is the Mutual Conquest, or Xiangke series, which says, Wood conquers earth, metal conquers wood, fire conquers metal, water conquers fire, and earth conquers water. Now, this is important because if a ruling dynasty's symbol was water, shui, Understanding the Mutual Conquest series of the five elements, one would know Earth conquers water. So the ruling dynasty would always be on the lookout for anything that was suggestive of the forces and symbols associated with the Earth element. And they'd look upon whatever that was with suspicion or as a possible threat to the fortunes of their dynasty. During the Han Dynasty, it was said that the ruling house ruled under the red phase of the fire element. And if you recall, towards the end of the Han, the one thing that foretold the end of the dynasty, the end of the mandate, was the Yellow Turban Rebellion. And yellow turbans knew red color combined with the fire element of the Han ruling family would be conquered by the color yellow and the water element. So they adopted the yellow color as one of their symbols of their rebellion and colored their turbans accordingly. Anyway, some Confucianists tried to dabble in Wuxing theory and tried to tie some strings to it, but most thought this was way too abstract and trying to tie 
Confucian ideology to the five elements was just going a bridge too far. Wang Chong, who we discussed in part five, the one who wrote the Lunhang, was a particularly vociferous critic of this Wuxing theory, at least as it related to Confucianism. A lot more to the Wuxing. It's like a rabbit hole and could go on forever. Just want to show that it exists and that it was another idea woven into the philosophy of China. I was contemplating mentioning Ge Hong, but I think we'll save him for a future episode. He's rather well known as one of China's greatest alchemists. In fact, Travis Dow and Pete Coleman featured Ge Hong in one of their History of Alchemy podcast episodes. He's probably best known for his mixture of alchemy and Taoism, particularly in the realm of achieving immortality. I was going to discuss him in part six when we looked at Laozi, Zhuangzi, and Taoism, but then I decided Ge Hong isn't really Dao Jia, Taoist philosophy, as much as he's slotted in the Yangsheng subcategory of Dao Jiao, the Taoist religion. Yangsheng means to preserve your life, something that Taoist masters throughout the centuries tried to figure out. And as we know from the story of Qin Shi Huang and other notables, eternal life was very heavy in demand by those who could afford to pay for it. That was the cryogenics of its day. So we'll hold off on Ge Hong for another day, or you can go check out Travis and Pete's History of Alchemy, episode 21. And while you're at it, go check out Pete's other show, The Bohemican. I fell in love with the Czech Republic listening to that show. Can't wait to go to Praha and see for myself one day. I hope Pete's still there. Travis Dow, also the famous proprietor of the History of Germany podcast, and a few others as well. Okay, you know something? Let's move on to something else. The purpose of this nine-part series was to put all this out there, introduce you to these times, these names, these main ideas, and to offer you a sense of how this all developed over the millennia. The same thing, philosophic thought, was, of course, going on all over the world. The Chinese weren't the only ones pondering life's great issues. The same was going on in the West and throughout the civilized world. So, you have all the bullet points, the names, and I hope somewhat of an appreciation of who was who and who said what, and I encourage you to do yourself a bit of good old-fashioned self-cultivation and see for yourself what this thought can teach you. The Lunyu, the Confucian Analects, just a collection of aphorisms, but a lot of them resonate just as loud today as they did back in the 6th century BCE. Most all of the great classic texts are freely available all over the Internet. The Internet Archive is a good place to get free downloads. Archive.org, if you don't know. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, I am closing out this year-long labor of love to try and take the history of Chinese philosophy, organize it, and put it inside an attractive nine-piece bento box. I hope you're leaving satisfied. Don't forget to recycle that box. One last thing before I go. Let me mention a new book. just came out on uh, University of Chicago Press, based in my Laojia. Scott Tong's A Village With My Name. A very well-crafted history of modern China that Scott tells through introducing the untold stories of his relatives. The ones who, well, due to historical circumstances didn't necessarily get to cash in on the China miracle. It's a great American immigrant story that weaves a nice tale that takes you to northern Jiangsu, Chongqing, Shanghai, Hong Kong, Nanjing, and Wuhan. 
A village with my name, Scott Tong. Yeah, the marketplace, Scott Tong, American Public Media. He was on Kaiser and Jeremy's Seneca show recently. Check that one out, too. Hey, and thanks to the brilliant and good-looking Alec Ash, Jeffrey Wasserstrom, L.A. Review of Books, the whole China Channel editorial team. Thanks for taking a chance with this nine-part series. If any of you get sick of China politics, news, and opinion, seek some cultural comfort and relief over at ChinaChannel.org. That's my recommendation. Overflowing with great stuff. Okay, Moidruzia. This is Laszlo Montgomery signing off from a recording studio somewhere in Los Angeles, California, where, well, if you saw it, you wouldn't believe it. Let's just leave it at that. I have the next great thing here at the CHP all lined up for all y'all, so don't worry. I'm not going to take another half-year sabbatical. Take care, everyone, and I look forward to seeing you next time for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.